Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, where we left off last week, Acts chapter 1. I think if you happen to be using one of our new Black Pew Bibles, you're somewhere around 761, I believe is the page number I looked at while I go that I meant to write down and didn't. But anyhow, if you happen to be using one of those, look back about 761, I believe it is. But the book of Acts, chapter 1, once you have found that, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And let's dive in. It says this in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse number 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when, uh, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will soon come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Father, this morning we've been blessed by the music, we've been blessed by the fellowship, and now, Father, you have blessed us with the reading of your word. I ask this of you, that you make that word come alive in our hearts this morning, not for the sake of knowledge, Father, but for the sake of falling in love with your son Jesus all over again, that we may do as he's commanded these apostles. So this morning to do that, Father, I ask that you make very little of me, that you make very much of you, that we may see you in all of your glory. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we started on a series called The Unfinished Work of Jesus. The Unfinished Work of Jesus. And as we started looking at Acts last week, we learned that it was written by Luke, if you remember. It's a continuation of what he had started in the Gospel of Luke. In his gospel, he gives a very detail-oriented account of the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And when he starts his second account, this, this book of Acts, he begins by telling us that he's picking up with, with what Jesus had both began to do and to teach. So that's the connector from what he, what he had done and uh, written about in Luke to this, this book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see the, the church form and, and see it from uh, the beginning and, and see it begin this unfinished work of, of Jesus. 
And if you remember, just to catch you up, the first thing that, that Jesus gives the church to, to start this work of the, of the unfinished work that he had left to, he had begun and left behind to be finished is that he, last week we looked at, he gave this demonstrated message, if you remember, this demonstrated message. And last week we saw that it was Jesus that not only gave the message, but he lived the message. That was the important part. It wasn't just a message. It was demonstrated in his life. So what was the message? What was that message that, that he had demonstrated? The message is really the gospel, that, that man's sinful and needs a savior, that God sent Jesus to be the savior of ours, to die for our sins because we couldn't ourselves. He came to be the sacrifice for us, that precious lamb, and, and that by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we might have life eternal and a relationship with God. That's the message. And he lived this message out, if you remember, in all that he did. He demonstrated it to them, it says until verse 2 here, until the day which he was taken up. This day that he was taken up. The fact that he was taken up to the Father must be a pretty important point. The reason I say that is because it's mentioned in verse 2, verse 9, verse 11 that I read. And if you look over just a couple of uh, verses later, verse 22. It's mentioned 40 four times in 22 verses. Four times in 22 verses. There must be something important about this fact that Jesus was taken up. It's important to note because the Bible tells us that Jesus at this moment is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on our behalf with the Father at this moment. It gives you a picture of who this Jesus is now. See, we have a tendency to read about who he was in the Bible and keep him stuck in that mode. But you know, Jesus right now is, for you, standing before the Father. For you, he's seated. He's seated at the right hand of the Almighty God on your behalf. <laughs> on your behalf. I, I find it very interesting. I find it very interesting that he's interceding for us. Matter of fact, he goes on to be put uh, as, as a picture of him talking about Melchizedek in the Bible and him being our high priest. He'd be the one that stands in the gap. It's also important to understand that he's with the Father right now because of what verse 11 says about the fact that he had ascended because verse 11 tells us that he's coming back. That would have been a great place for an amen. Apparently, I'm the only one looking for him to return. You know, him going to be with the Father tells me right now he's interceding in the presence of the Father and he's willing to come back and get something that he loves dearly. What is the something? Me and you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's coming back. It's important to understand that his work is not finished. He's coming back for his church. Now, verse 2 also tells us that, that as he was teaching, as he was doing those things until the day was taken up, it says that he was doing it through the Holy Spirit that he had given commandments. I found it very interesting as I read that. As I was studying this, this chapter and thinking about this text, it tells us that he taught through the power of the Holy Spirit, the commandments to the apostles. Gives me an interesting thought. Have you ever noticed that the Trinity was in all that Jesus did? It just struck me. When I, when I read this, it just struck me that the Trinity is in everything that Jesus did. He said he did the Father's will. He did it in the person of the Son. And this tells us he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did was done in Trinitarian form. It was the Father guiding. It was Him as the Son doing it, and it was the Holy Spirit putting the power to it. The power to it. Remember it says that He raised people by the power of God from the dead. He healed people by the power of God. And then when He said, Jesus, why don't you do this and that? He says, I'm here to do my Father's will. Remember in the garden, 
in the garden. He was so troubled by what he was physically about to endure that he prayed, Father, if there's any way possible, if you have a secondary will, let that be the truth. But, it, but if you don't, if there's not a plan B, Father, I'm going with your plan A, your will. He says, let your will be done. It's amazing to see this picture. And Jesus taught and he planned and he worked through the power of the Holy Spirit which is really neat. We'll look at it in just a couple of weeks, how that applies to us. He also tells us in that second verse, not only was, was he taken up, not only did he give commandments through the Holy Spirit, but it says that he taught to the apostles whom he had chosen. Always a point of contention. In any church, when you talk about salvation and the work of salvation, not the plan this morning. The plan this morning is to talk about what he meant by he had chosen in this particular thing. Here's what it tells me as I read it. There are people that get hung up on whether God does the choosing or they do the choosing in salvation. You know my beliefs on it. I've taught it from this pulpit, and I believe it's completely biblical that God does the work of salvation and does the choosing. That's why uh, Jesus says that from his lips in the Bible. But what he says here is that he has chosen. And the thought that comes to my mind, isn't it wonderful that no, that God loves me so much that he would choose me? See, the thought that comes to my mind is not if he chooses It's why he would choose a person like me. Why? Of all the people, would he say I would take him? It gives me a certain peace to know that Jesus chose to love me. It gives me this peace to know that he chose to crawl up on a cross because of me. It gives me, though, a certain sense of responsibility. It gives me a certain sense of responsibility that though Jesus not only chose to love me, He chose to give me the commandments of what I am to do because he loved me. (laughs) So it gives me this certain sense of responsibility. And and he's put the church, us, the body of Christ, those who believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he is the head of the church, those of us who are actively seeking to do the will of God as, as Christ did, the church, the living church on this earth, he's put it in place, put it in place to finish the work that he started. And the work that he started began with the demonstrating of the message. Let's look at what it continued to this week. Second, second, he gave us the divine manifestation. The divine manifestation. Acts 1, 1 through 3 is a very interesting text where it says, The former account I made, O Theopolis. That ties us back in to the Luke section of all that Jesus began to do and teach. That shows us that he demonstrated that message and he started that process. And that process is still continuing because it does not say he finished it. He did finish the work of redemption. He's still working on the work of spreading the good news. It goes on to say, until the day was taken up, after it was through the Holy Spirit, he was teaching the commandments to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Those are all wonderful. Then it moves into that third verse and it says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Boy, there is a mouthful in that one verse. There's a mouthful of theology in that one verse. The apostles, let's think about them for a minute. The apostles have been with Jesus for some three years. They had walked with him. They'd talked with him. They'd sat and ate with him. They'd listened to him teach. They had seen him have compassion on those that, that were hurting. They had seen him heal bodies. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen people reach out from a crowd and just touch the hem of his garment and be healed. They had heard him say to one, I don't have to go to your house. The guy said, just just ask, just please heal my son. I know that you are who you are. And Jesus said, they're healed. When they arrived back home, lo and behold, they were healed. 
They had seen Jesus sit in crowded houses and people so desiring to be in his presence that they lowered them down through a roof to get him at his feet. They had seen multitudes of people, multitudes of people fed by this man. They had just witnessed this whole life that he had lived. And now, in this moment, this Jesus is dead. Do you understand that's where we're at in Acts? Do you understand that's the picture? See, this man that they had lived with, they had seen all these things, they had heard him talk about who he was and what was in store for the world through him, is dead. He is not with them anymore. They're all alone. It's as if having the greatest teacher in all the world teaching your class and, and you're learning things, you're about to take the final exam and he's got just a few more things to go over so that you can pass the exam and he doesn't come back to class. Jesus is dead. As far as they know, there is no more Jesus. Can you imagine the questions that would be running through their mind? I said that, I thought about it. Was he really the Son of God? We heard him say he's the Son of God, now he's dead. Can, can God die? Matter of fact, did he really die? Because we went to the tomb and he wasn't there. That's a good question. Where is his body? Who's got it? Where did it go? Another question. If, if he is dead, if he's no longer here, why would he orphan us? Why would he leave us? What, what did we do? Well, wasn't he supposed to be the king? Hold on, he was the Messiah. He was supposed to be the king. You ever seen a dead guy be king? See, these thoughts had to be running through their mind. They were human. They were human just as we are human. This man that they had depended on for three years that they had placed their life in and they had heard speak the words of life and make these prophecies about himself was gone. Now the questions in their mind started. They had one sense believed Jesus had come to set up a kingdom on earth and that he was to rule over. Remember the questions they asked. Who would be first in the kingdom? You know, when is this going to happen? They had asked these questions to him. But now this ruler of this kingdom that they anticipated being part of, the leadership of, the ruler's gone. Now not only is the ruler gone, there is no kingdom as far as they can see. I'm sure the spirit of despondency just fell over them. <laughs> they, they didn't know what to do. I, I'm sure they had no idea what the next step was. They're, they're just helpless. You know, in fact, the Bible gives us a picture of it. Turn back to John real fast. Just back one book. John towards the end. John 21, I think it is. Yes, John 21. Right at the very first of John chapter 21, it says this. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Now look what, who's gathered there. It gives us a list. It says, verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were gathered together. So a pretty handsome list of men that have been with Jesus. Have been with Jesus. So he's died and is getting ready to tell us how he appeared to him. He hasn't yet. So they're all gathered together there. And it says, Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. What do men do when the world gets too tough? They go fishing. They go fishing. 
See, Peter, the leader of the disciples, was so discouraged that Jesus was no longer there and his world had fallen apart. He reverted back to that which he had done before he'd ever met Jesus, which was to go fishing. And if you'll notice, the others said, hey, I think we're going with you. You know the rest of the story. It goes on and they didn't catch anything. Jesus shows up and they get to meet him. But see the despondency? See, when they could not lay eyes on just Jesus, what did they turn to? Something comfortable. As a matter of fact, there's another story in Mark that represents it even better, I believe. Mark 16. Mark 16. Yes, in the 14th verse of Mark 16, it says this. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. So the eleven, the twelve disciples minus the betrayer Judas, sat at a table. Here's the interesting thing that happens. It says, And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. The eleven. The eleven who had lived with Jesus. The eleven who had heard him say, tear down the temple, three days later I'll build it. The one who had said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so will the Lord be. The one who had said, I will conquer those things. Had witnesses come to them and say, we have seen the living Jesus, and they did not believe. They did not believe. They were rebuked for not believing. The ones who were charged to carry the gospel message to the rest of the world... <laughs> did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. See where they're at? See where their mindset's at? This brings us to that Acts 3, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 passage. It says, To whom he presented himself alive. Who do you think the who's were? The ones to whom he presented himself were the ones who actually should have never needed a presentation of Jesus Christ. They should have known him so well and his heart so well that they should not have needed a physical manifestation. They were the ones that had spent the most time with him. In fact, when you look at the list of those he presented himself to, it has a very interesting set of characteristics. Flip over to 1 Corinthians to the right, just a, a book or two there to the 15th chapter. 15th chapter and the third verse. It says this, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here's what Paul's delivering to him. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to Scripture. So he's pointing out to us here that all those things that they taught, all those things that Christ did, had been pointed out in Scripture. Keep in mind, he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' death of his burial, of his resurrection. He says, I'm presenting these things to you that have long been written in Scripture. He goes on in verse 5 to say, And that he was seen by Cephas, then by twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Do you notice the common denominator in those that he appeared to? There is a common denominator. Let me read the list to you real fast, just briefly. It says it was Cephas. His name is also known as Peter. There was 12, speaking of the disciples. There was 500 brethren, which should give you a clue. There was James, which was probably Jesus' half 
brother. There were all the apostles, and then there was Paul, the greatest preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. What's the common denominator in all of those? They believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're all believers. Do you not find that odd? Jesus rose from the dead in a world that didn't believe he was Lord. Yet he appeared to believers. <laughs> you ever stop to think <laughs> that he only appeared to the believers? <laughs> and why? <laughs> See, wouldn't it have made a whole lot more sense? Wouldn't it have made a whole lot more sense for the guy who said that I am Jesus, I am God's son, you can put me on the cross and you can bury me, but three days later I'm going to rise again and I'm ultimately going to be the king of, of the new kingdom. Wouldn't it have made more sense for Jesus to go to those who didn't believe? Wouldn't it have? Wouldn't that have caused some of them to become believers? And wasn't that the ultimate goal? That wasn't his finished work, yes. But remember, he hung up on a cross and he said, God, it is finished. That part of his ministry was over. There was an unfinished work that now had begun. The unfinished work was not him spreading the message. It was the believers spreading the message. Jesus' purpose in appearing was not that some may believe. It was to give confidence to the ones who did believe that the message he lived out would then be spread to the hearts of those who did not believe. See the shift in the work? He appeared to those who believed so that they would have confidence in what he had said and how he had lived, and they would take that message to a lost and dying world. For the message of the gospel to impact the entire world, the disciples had to have confidence that the message was true. And with the messenger dead, their confidence had fallen away. Their confidence had fallen away. The plan to spread the gospel message to the ends of the world required not only this proper message of the gospel, but it also required a confident messenger to present it. These apostles, these believers. And the thing the apostles lacked at the very moment we see them in Acts 1-3 is confidence. They were locked away in a room. They were scared to death. They had no confidence. So verse 3 then says, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them for 40 days. For 40 days. Jesus appears to the believer was not this one-time occurrence. He didn't just show up and disappear. The Bible says that they saw him repeatedly for 40 days. For 40 days. He was in their lives for this period of time. And it was these times together that gave him this undeniable proof, that just gave them this undeniable proof that Jesus was alive. See, many of us today, deep down in our heart, don't really believe Jesus is alive. But we serve a risen Savior. We serve a risen Savior that lives within us. What good is it to have a Savior that is dead and can do nothing for you? We serve a risen Savior. How do we know that this risen Savior lives? How do we know? And you may say, we know because he lives within our heart. True answer. That is a true answer. But you know, Scripture also tells us. Just flip back over really fast. We're running short of time. I'll just give you a couple of examples. You can go home and look at them later. Look at John. John chapter 20. Any of the, the resurrection experiences in the gospel 
will give you evidence along with a ton of other places. We'll just flip over this one in John. There's a place in John chapter 20 verse 11 where it has this lady named Mary Magdalene. You know the story. It says, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So obviously it's talking about the tomb of Jesus. Obviously there is no stone in front of the tomb because she was able to stoop down and look inside. And it says in verse 12, and she saw two angels sitting, uh, angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So now it gives us this picture that there's this tomb. The stone's been rolled away. She looks inside and the the tomb is found to be empty. The body of Jesus is is missing. See the picture? It goes on in 13. It says, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Give you a picture of her heart. She didn't look inside the tomb and say, I'm weeping because Jesus rose from the dead and walked away. Mm. She said, someone's taking his body. See, see the picture? <laughs> look, look what happens in 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Don't you love the way he just slips up sometimes and nobody knows it's him? <laughs> Isn't that neat? It goes on to say in 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Seems to be a theme going on in their question now, doesn't it? It says, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Her thought is still that someone's moved the body. This guy must be the gardener. He must be the one who's taken the body. If he'll just be so kind as to tell her where it's at, she'll take care of it from there. Notice. She still doesn't think Jesus has risen from the dead. Look what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. That's all he simply says. She turns and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. At the sound of her voice coming, at the sound of his voice, her name coming from his lips, she recognized Jesus. It says she turned and said, Rabboni. Jesus then told her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. I have yet ascended. So we see this picture. Mary gone to the tomb to minister to the body. She talks to someone outside the tomb. She thinks it's the gardener. The gardener says her name. She recognizes that it's Jesus. Jesus. Proof. Proof positive. Gives names. Gives places. Gives examples. If you just move down to the 19th verse right below that. Where we just were. It gives you another example. Then the same day at evening. So it even tells us what time frame it is. The same day that this happened with Mary Magdalene. Here we are again. It says the same day being the first day of the week when the doors were shut. Where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them. Peace be with you. The understatement of the day. If we were in a locked room and Jesus appeared. He would probably have to say more than peace to keep us from screaming like little girls. But here. In the middle of a room, the ones that were shut up, locked in for fear of the Jews, and suddenly in their midst stands Jesus. It says in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Their story after story after story of the appearance of Jesus to individuals as well as groups. Thomas, it goes on in in the 20th chapter, and it tells you about Thomas. Thomas there in that uh, section of Scripture. Even over in Luke, 
Even over in Luke, it tells you in like the 24th verse that not only did he show them that he had uh, these scars in his hand and his feet and they believed, but it says over in in that uh, Luke uh, passage in Luke 24, in the 40th verse, it says this, when he had said this, after speaking to their hearts, said he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still not did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? See, I love this account of Luke's. I love this kind of Luke. You know, that speaks volumes to me. That speaks volumes to me. Jesus had appeared to him, and they were still so troubled they did not believe. He showed them the hands and his feet, and, and they came to, to believe. It, it proved to them that he was, was not some ghost because he had hands and he had feet and he had a side. He wasn't just some apparition that had showed up in their presence. He showed them where he had been nailed to the cross. But then... I think just to prove a point, he said, I've got a hunger. How about you guys? Anybody got a fish sandwich? He's telling us that he came back, as it said in verse 11 I read while I go in Acts 1, in like manner, not only in the way, but in the form. Remember, Thomas wouldn't believe until he could put his fingers in the holes. These guys believed because they saw Jesus, but they believed more because they saw him eat. They saw him be physical. They realized this. He was alive. It wasn't just some thing that was showing up. It was a living person. Jesus. <laughs> this lends to the fact that we will have a physical body in heaven. Amen? I hope it doesn't look like this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got a friend. Got a friend back there in Jesus. They think I should be looking like... I'm thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger maybe with a deep voice and able to lift heavy things. I don't know. But we'll have a new body. You know what comes with that? It just happened to hit me. Apparently, you're still hungry. How would you like to know that you get everything there is in food out when you eat instead of it being tainted by the sin of this world? How many of you love a good steak? Anybody? How would you like to know that you got ahead of you the best steak you have ever put in your mouth because you'll taste it for all it is? How many of you like asparagus? You're out of luck. There's going to be none in heaven. Nah, but, but I mean, you think about it. Even the food we eat now is contaminated by sin in the world. Think about when you have the new glorious body. When you're in heaven where there is no sin. And everything is to its fullest. Homemade ice cream will probably never taste so good. I just can't wait. That's a side note. No charge for it. We'll enjoy all those things that God has for us because we will be alive just as Jesus is alive. So not only did he have a physical appearance uh, uh, to them of Jesus that, that gave this proof that he was alive, not only was there this physical appearance, but, but what he did during the 40 days that he physically appeared to them also proved to them that he was alive. In that last part of that third verse of, of Acts 1, it says that uh, he was suffering by many infallible proofs he had shown them. But then it says, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, Jesus wasn't just popping in and out for a fish sandwich. He wasn't just walking around showing people his hands. He was doing something. He was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And his actions during the 40 days was also infallible proof that he was the Son of God and that he was alive. Jesus' message when he was on this earth was a message that the kingdom of God was at hand. Remember? Over 
And over and over again you would hear him preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the time the kingdom of God is at hand. That there was this kingdom of God where God would rule and he would reign over. And it was right before them in the present. That was his message as he was going about. It is, it is life. And the message of the kingdom of God would have given them confidence. Because they had heard this message over and over and over again from this man they so dearly loved. So what is it about the kingdom of God that would have given them the confidence that he was God and that he was alive in their presence? What is it that he could have said about the kingdom of God that would have given them confidence? Let me very quickly give you a couple of things. The first, that the priority of the kingdom, that there is this priority of the kingdom. Matthew 6, 33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and, the, and his righteousness, and all things shall be added to you. When Jesus was teaching, he says, There is this this urges this priority for this kingdom. There's a priority that should be in order in your life. At the top of that priority list in your life should be this kingdom of God. I believe Jesus would have reminded them of the urgency to seek God first, to make God's priority their priority. And what is God's priority? That's really simple, that he be the central focus of everything in your life. So as he's walking with them for 40 days in this body after his resurrection, you know what he's teaching them? God should be the center of your life. His kingdom is the priority. That should be your focus. And by focusing on God, then you focus on those around you. Because remember what he tells us in Luke 10, 27. When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. So he starts putting this order to the kingdom for us. This order. If our priority is loving God with everything that we are, we will be involved in his top priority, which is demonstrating the message to the kingdom of the kingdom of God to a lost world. How? By participating in the work of Jesus. And Jesus told us plainly what his work was on this earth as he walked. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. So if the kingdom is priority in our life, we will be about what Jesus was about, which seeking and saving the lost. So Jesus would teach the priority of kingdom, I'm sure, to him. He would also, I believe, teach them the urgency of the kingdom. The urgency. It's not hard to imagine. It's not hard to imagine in this world that we live in <laughs> that it is very close to the end of time. It's not hard to imagine at all. The Bible speaks of end times and it tells us what the end times will be like. Things like people will seek after their own pleasure, uh, where truth is no longer relevant, uh, where churchgoers come and they want to hear what tickles their ears, not the truth of God's word that convicts their hearts. Would standing up for God become something that gets you persecuted, not praised? You see the picture of our world today? It's, it's not hard to see that the physical world that we live in is quickly drawing to end time. All those things that we're seeing today is, is in that time that we live and it's given us evidence that this kingdom of the world we live in is about to come to an end at, in, at any day. But the kingdom Jesus is teaching about is not just the end time kingdom. It's not just this ending of the world, so to speak, kingdom. It's not this, this changing of the powers to be. To understand eternity and what eternity really is, is to understand that eternal life doesn't begin when Jesus returns the next time. Eternal life began for you the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This kingdom that he's talking about 
you're already in. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're already a member of the kingdom. See, you're not waiting for Jesus' return to become a member. You accept Him as your Lord and Savior, and you're a member now. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, God is what He's saying, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God for all that He is and to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. John 10, 10 says that Jesus speaking says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Jesus came that we may have an abundant life here as well as in all of eternity. Why is it so important that eternal life begins now? And why is it so important that eternal life can be abundant for us? How many of you think the world can be a better place? Anybody? Anybody think the world could be a better place than it is now? (laughs) How many of you think that knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would make the world a better place? Anyone? (laughs) If we truly believe that Jesus is the answer to the problem of the world, we should stop judging the sins of the world and start sharing Jesus with them. If you believe the world could be better and that Jesus is the answer, stop judging their sins. And start sharing your Jesus. See, the answer is not to keep them out. The answer is to bring them in. See, if you want to do what Jesus did, you share the gospel with the ones who don't deserve the gospel, which was you and me at one time, by the way. See, if we want to be about what Jesus is about, if we want to see that kingdom explode, we'll invite people into the kingdom. How do you do that? By sharing the gospel. We need to be about doing the work of Jesus. The work of God on this earth. There is nothing left to fulfill from God's side of the equation. He's already sent the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. And His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come that salvation is possible. What needs to happen is the church of Jesus Christ needs to go into the world with the message of the kingdom of God. And we need to do it just as Jesus did it. Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, I believe it is, says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We need as a church to be sharing the message that Jesus shared. It is that God loves you through the death of His Son who died on a cross for your sins, was buried in a grave and rose three days later that you might have eternal life. Not only did Jesus teach the priority of the kingdom and the urgency of the kingdom, I think He taught the reality of the kingdom to them. The reality of the kingdom. Jesus wanted them to know that the crucifixion His crucifixion on the cross had not changed the plan. See, because part of the question of their mind had to be, the guy who was going to lead has been killed on the cross. What's plan B? Jesus wanted them to know his death on the cross had not changed anything. That his death on the cross was not a change in the kingdom at all, but that his death on the cross ushered in the kingdom of God. 
He said, I want you to know that my death on this cross, it kicks in the kingdom of God. It doesn't end the kingdom of God. It was important for them to know that God's plan was in full swing. That Jesus' death on the cross was part of that plan. That God had foreordained that he would die on that cross. That the only way anyone could be in the kingdom was for the king to die, be buried, and to rise again. And for them to believe that in their heart and confess that with their mouth was their only way into the kingdom and now Jesus was putting the full weight he was putting the full weight of the advancement of that kingdom squarely on the shoulders of those who believed because he was about to leave he laid on your shoulders and mine the full weight of that message and he did this by building their confidence in the king and his message and Christ ushers in the new rule over the earthly kingdom in the form of the church. The form of the church. The church is to pick up the unfinished work of Jesus and continue by the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the word to the lost. Jesus has manifested himself to all who believe in them and him as their Lord and Savior. He has manifested himself to every one of you who believe. How has he done that? He's come to live inside of you. You see, we serve a living Savior. Now we must with confidence go and proclaim this demonstrated message because of this divine manifestation in our own lives. We can do well to remember one passage, and I'll close with this. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, and starting in the fourth verse. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, verse 7, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not attained mercy but now have attained mercy. You want to talk about a picture of the kingdom of God. (laughs) That simple set of verses tells you a couple of things that I hope you take to heart. We're a chosen people. We're living stones in a living house of God that is headed up by the living Savior, Jesus Christ. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are even His own special people. And we're called. We are called. We are called to proclaim His praises because because He has called us out of darkness into light. And not just any light, 
His marvelous light. We are now people. A people who have been shown mercy and grace. Let's demonstrate the message of mercy and grace because of Christ's divine manifestation in our life. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.